So glad the Lord gave us singing. And what a gift to express our love to the Lord in that way, to think on the, the greatest of things and to declare them. In addition to that, he's given us the gift of his precious word. And it's our delight to turn again to Psalm 139. If you would turn there with me. We're going to be specifically in verses 7 to 12 in Psalm 139. You know, as fallen human beings, we are limited. We have great limitations. And those limitations provide temptations for us, but also certain vulnerabilities. On the side of temptations, we're tempted to think that when others aren't with us because they are limited and can't see us that we essentially can act in any way we want without consequence. Our children, we see this in them from the time they are born. As soon as you teach your little crawling infant not to touch something, all you have to do is hide in the kitchen or look around the corner and they will physically look both directions and then go straight for the thing that you told them not to touch. If only that foolish inclination dwindled with age. You know, even as fully grown adults, we're still tempted to lie to ourselves and believe that as long as I'm unseen by human eyes, I am truly alone. Somehow we, the thought that we are unseen ignites in us this foolish chain of thinking in which we believe that we can do what we want without harm to others or consequence to ourselves. This, of course, is foolishness. The sensation of being alone becomes a temptation for us really on two fronts. On the one hand, being alone can provide a temptation to think that it's more permissible to act in a sinful way, but also being alone can make us fearful that we are now vulnerable to the sins of others. What will happen to me? What will someone else do to me because I am now alone? And as we grow older, we're not only tempted to fear being alone ourselves, we're now bombarded with a new temptation for our loved ones. What about my kids? What about my spouse? When they're alone, they have to face these temptations and vulnerabilities. We're tempted to think, I wonder what they're like when I'm not around, or to think, I wonder what will happen to them when I'm not around. This even happens if you're, if you're older, when your parents get to a certain age, you now begin to worry about them. How are they gonna make it when I'm not there? So if you think about it, being alone, this limitation of being alone outside the view of other people is a, limit, a limitation that's innate to all of us as human beings, and it comes with temptations and vulnerabilities on every side. So the question is, how do we live upright, holy lives with these limitations? Well, that's the question I want us to consider this morning as we turn back to Psalm 139. The psalmist helps us with this by a personal meditation on the omnipresence of God. Psalm 139, we're going to begin in verse seven. David writes, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to you. Remember the theme that the psalmist lays before us that we're unpacking together is this, that we are to delight in the perfections of our God and continually invite his personal examination. Delight in his perfections and invite his personal examination. It's clear that this Psalm of David is written with the motivation of David's response of awe and wonder at the grandeur of his God. He is captivated by the perfections of God or the attributes of God. As we said last time when we looked at this Psalm, the perfections of God or his attributes are those descriptions of God by nature, who he is in his essence. And we emphasize the fact that God is all of these attributes at the same time, all the time. In Psalm 139, David invites us into his personal meditation on the perfections of God. And this is particularly helpful for us because as we've already seen in the first six verses, he he takes the perfections of God and he thinks of them in a very personalized way. And he invites us to do the same thing. He wants us to take these attributes of God's character, of his nature, and to think of the ways that they specifically then are to impact us, how they apply to our personal lives. When it comes to difficult circumstances or battling temptation towards sin, we're reminded here that the first place we ought to turn our minds is the person of God himself. David does it over and over again, and he invites us to follow his lead. So this Psalm, Psalm 139, is a clear example of how we put into practice true trust of God? How do you shepherd your mind in the midst of difficulties and temptation? Well, look no further than Psalm 139. This Psalm breaks down into four components. We've looked at the first of those components. Remember the first three components deal with different attributes or perfections of God. And the final component is the Psalmist's personal response to these perfections of God. We looked at component number one in verses one to six. Each of these, by the way, have six verses. Component one was personal omniscience. He knows you intimately. The fact that God is all knowing. And we saw this great opening statement that we have to keep in mind because this opening statement really lays the theme of the the author's thought as a whole. In the opening statement, he says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And that searching of God, that perfect knowledge of God of us is what drives the author to write. And he gives six examples of the personal omniscience of God. We saw these last time, so I won't expound on these, but let me just remind you, he knows my daily routine. He knows my inner thoughts. He analyzes my activity and rest. He knows my internal and external mannerisms. He knows the formation of my words and he holds me captive to his knowledge. 
The author then responds to this with awe and wonder and a personal uh, moment of worship and awe. That brings us now to our study today. Component number two, the personal omnipresence of God. This uh, is actually verses seven to 12. Verses seven to 12, personal omnipresence. He accompanies you unceasingly. He accompanies you unceasingly. In these verses, the author unpacks for us this great aspect of who God is, that he is omnipresent. Omnipresence simply means that God's presence is in every point of space with his whole being. That's the definition of Alan Cairns. Essentially, think of it this way, the fullness of God, all that he is, is in every place at the same time, all the time. So introducing that idea now, David's going to take it just like he did with omniscience and he's gonna break that apart and look at it specifically as how it applies to him and thereby show us how it applies to us. And he opens with these two questions in verse seven. These lay the framework for his thoughts. He says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Now this is an example of Hebrew poetry. We see it throughout actually Psalm 139 and other Psalms. Hebrew poetry, by the way, is not based on the rhyming of words, but the rhyming of ideas. So he will state the same truth two different ways, slightly changing it so that the ideas rhyme. So the, the ideas are what is rhyming rather than the actual words themselves. Both of these phrases, these questions, harmonized together to give us a full picture of what the author is not only asking, but really what he's stating to be true about God. Both of the questions in verse seven begin the same way. Where can I? Where can I? Notice how personalized this is. He doesn't say where can man go or where can people go? Instead, he's thinking of God's omnipresence in this personalized fashion and in so doing, he calls us to do the same. I want you to ask yourself, where can I go? And in the next word in each question is where the questions diverge. First of all, question number one, where can I go from your spirit? Now the word go here is the normal word for going. It's all encompassing. It's, a, it's the idea of wherever you go in your daily life. Where can I go in the sense of going to the store or to work or on vacation or to the fridge? Anywhere you go is built into this everyday word. The idea is where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go from you, God? Notice the answer is really nowhere. That's the idea. He's making a statement in the form of a question. Where can I go? The idea is I can't go anywhere. He's gonna prove that to us here in just a moment. The truth is we are never truly alone. So that human limitation that we have of we can't be with people all the time everywhere, that's true of us, but it's never true in the truest sense because God is always everywhere all the time. And so in that sense, we are never actually alone no matter how lonely we may feel. This word here, going, is it's really a, 
the all-encompassing word of our daily activity, but he changes to a different verb in the second question. He, he asks it a little bit differently here. Where can I flee from your presence? That's a different idea. Number one, you can't go anywhere in your regular activities that will take you to a place where God is not. But also you can't run away to anywhere intentionally and find yourself somewhere that God is not. Jonah found that out, didn't he? God says, go. Jonah went the opposite direction. It says, from the presence of the Lord. Only he found out that was impossible. The word flee comes with a sense of intentionality. This is a person who has chosen to do their best to run away from the presence of God. And here we have an accurate translation when it says, where can I flee from your presence? But literally the Hebrew word is not presence, but it's the word for face. Where can I flee from your face? I think that's a, a beautiful picture. He literally says, Yahweh, where can I flee from your face? This is a beautiful picture of the fact that, that you are never outside of God's vision. He never sees you in his peripheral vision and you are never sort of a sensation behind his back as you stand behind him. And he sort of, he knows you're there, but he's not really watching. No, the idea is you are always all the time face to face with God. He sees you right here, wherever you go. You cannot run from the face of God. Christians, that's how we should think about the omnipresence of God in a personal way. When you're tempted to think that you have accidentally found yourself somewhere and God's abandoned you, or you've run away and you think you've reached a place where God is not, bring your mind back to the truth that what's actually happening is God is staring you right in the face. All the time, everywhere. And just to magnify this point, he's gonna prove it to us with three pairs of contrasting statements. Similarly to last week or last time, there are six statements, but he's gonna put them in pairs, three pairs of contrasting statements. So as he begins to think of places he might go, he begins to wonder, if I went here, would you be there? If I went there, would you be there? And so he begins to think in extremes. And the first example here, he's going to think of the highest height and the lowest deep. He begins, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I ascend to heaven. So David here, again, he's trying to push his mind to the extremes and we're to follow him there. And he's trying to think of what's the highest place that I can conceive? What, what's the tallest location? And so he strains his brain to the extremes. He quickly surpasses the tops of the trees and the tops of the mountains. He finds himself then in outer space, but then still there's something higher, the highest heaven. And so he takes his mind up to that highest place, the abode of God. And then he reminds himself, even if it was possible, if I could go right now to the highest place I can imagine, you are there. And notice the way he says that. It's, he doesn't say you will find me there. He says you are there in the present tense. He would be with David where he stands. He would be with David along the way and he would be with David when he got there because he is there all the time. 
He never happens upon us. He never finds us. He's always with us. So David says, well, what if I jump to the opposite extreme? What's the lowest place I can think of? And so David's mind comes to the place of the dead, Sheol. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Sheol is the the Hebrew equivalent to the word in Greek, Hades, that we see in the New Testament. It is typically not used in a way that we should think of hell proper. That is where ultimately those who are judged will be cast eventually, but it is the place of the dead. Sometimes it's used generally to speak of the place of the dead, but most often it refers to that place of the unrighteous dead where they are indeed tormented by God's wrath awaiting the day in which they will be finally judged and thrown into the eternal hell. But the point here is that God is even there. His presence is even there. The point is really not to get into a theological discussion of Sheol, but to realize that's the lowest place David could think of. That's as far away as he could get from where he was on the low end of the spectrum And he says, if I was able to do that, you are there. Your presence is there. Sometimes we don't think about God's presence in a place of judgment, but actually the Bible is clear. He is everywhere, even there. Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon. Abaddon's another word for the place of torment. Lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of men. The fact that God is by nature omnipresent means we, we simply can't allow for even Sheol to be a place where God's presence is absent. But having thought of the highest height and the, the lowest deep, he says, what if I go the other way? What if I go from farthest east to furthest west? What if I stretch out on this plane? Now, in order to understand the examples that David gives here, you have to picture yourself there where David lived. If you were in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah there in Israel, a Jewish person trying to visualize the furthest eastern location and the furthest western location would think along these terms. So first he begins to think of east. Where's the eastern extremity that his mind would turn to? And so he says, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I take the wings of the dawn, using beautiful poetic language, David describes the the sunrise like wings of the dawn, as if the wings of sunlight are stretching across the eastern horizon. And in his mind's eye, he says, if I could go there at the point of the sunrise, the furthest that my eyes could see to the east, And then he adds another question. What about to the west? So his mind gazes to the west and if you are there in Jerusalem and you begin to think of the the western extreme, you end up somewhere in the middle of the ocean. And so he says, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, if I go all the way to the west as far as I can go and I find myself bobbing up and down in the ocean, lost at sea, And this time, as he thinks on this east and west plane, he changes the formula slightly. You remember in the initial section with up and down, high and low, he 
gave a question and the answer immediately followed, you are there. But here he gives two questions followed by two answers. The two questions are, the wings of the dawn on the far eastern horizon and bobbing up and down in the sea, lost at sea on the far western horizon. If I could go to those two places, he says, even there, I would find you. But he doesn't just say you are there. Notice to the, the response that he gives, verse 10. Even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Now, as we read these two explanations, these two answers, we get a, a hint at the disposition from which David's writing. Up until now, it's not been crystal clear as to whether or not he sees the nearness of God as a good thing or as a troubling thing. But clearly now we see beyond a shadow of a doubt that David is writing and thinking of the presence of God as his greatest good. He doesn't see the omniscience of God or the omnipresence of God as a source of oppression, but as the thing he desperately needs and desires. He is not recounting these truths from a place of rebellion, but of desperate dependence. And so we're to take Psalm 139 as the meditation of a believer, how a believer thinks about these attributes of God. This is a believer, in fact, whom, whose life has been grabbed by the ankles and turned upside down and shaken violently. He finds himself in difficult straits and dark circumstances. And so he reflects on the, the character of his God to comfort his heart. He reminds us that while staring into the face of great uncertainty and great difficulty, the solution for the Christian is to recall the unshakable certainties of who God is. And in each of these truths, he turns his mind to all the possible faraway places that he might find himself either by accident or even by running there, only to remind himself that even if I'm lost at sea, treading water, totally alone, God is there. But he's not just there passively watching. And this is so important for us Christian. God's not just there saying, it's gonna be okay, you're gonna make it. He's not just your buddy. God is there actively helping. He is your help in the midst of the storm. He'll be there to offer tangible help when you feel lost and undone by your circumstances. So the question is, in what way does God tangibly help us in the midst of difficulty? Well, David mentions two, two specific ways that God helps us in difficult circumstances. Number one, help number one, he leads us. He leads us. Look back at verse 10. Even there, your hand will lead me. What's so wonderful about David's examples here is that they are true both in the literal sense and in the symbolic sense. What I mean is that if you physically find yourself in a place and you are physically lost, these things are true. But if you stay in the same physical location, but your life is flipped upside down and internally you feel lost, these things are also true. The omnipresence of God stretches 
to both. There's no physical place that you can go that's outside the omnipresence of God and there's no circumstance you can encounter that's outside the omnipresence of God. And the first source of help that he gives to his people when you feel lost or find yourself actually lost is leadership. He will lead me. And is that not one of our greatest concerns? You know, when we think about going to some unfamiliar place or walking into some unfamiliar circumstance, we wonder, what am I going to do? How will I know where to go? How will I know how to live and how to be? I'm gonna need wisdom. I'm gonna need direction for that circumstance. And how can I have assurance that I'm gonna do the right thing and know which way to go? Well, David reminds himself that he doesn't have to wonder because the sovereign God who ordains every day and step of his life will be there to lead him. But how does that happen? It does bring up a question. Practically, how does God lead us? I wanna talk about that for a moment because this is a place where Christians often get mixed up. And unfortunately we get mixed up because there's a lot of bad teaching on how God leads us. Throughout scripture, let me just put it into two categories. Throughout scripture, we see God leading his people through miraculous means and through ordinary means. Miraculous means and ordinary means. And many Christians today believe that God is going to daily lead them through miraculous means. That's what they're looking for. And that's a misconception and I'll explain why. But there are two primary misconceptions about how God leads us. The first one is that God will speak to me. That is God will give me a divine personal word. Many Christians today believe that in order to be led by God, what we need to do is be still and listen for that still quiet voice. Some would go as far as to say that's gonna be an audible voice in which God literally speaks. Others would say, no, it's gonna be in my thoughts or in my emotions. He's gonna make me feel a certain way, but God's gonna speak to me. And when he does, then I'll know what to do. And the reason that misconception has, has legs is because in scripture, God has spoken directly to certain individuals. He's spoken to his prophets, to his apostles. He has used at certain times in human history that means to speak to people, that has happened. The difference is those instances are descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, God is not saying that he is going to always speak to each one of us in that miraculous way. God has done that at certain times in history. Those prophets then were affirmed and they wrote down that instruction for us so that we still have it bound in the pages of scripture. But there's a second way that we get misled in this because people look for God to lead miraculously and they look for the fact that God will give me a sign, a personal miracle. God, do a miracle for me, a personal miracle. Give me a sign. They may ask for a specific sign like a shooting star or they may simply say, you know what? God, if things go well for me, then I'll know that you want this. And if they don't go well for me, then I'll know that you don't. But again, while God has done many miracles throughout scripture, that was never the way in which he promised to daily lead his people. Instead, the way that God daily leads us is not through the miraculous means, but through ordinary means. And here are the two primary ways that God leads his people today. Number one, his inspired word. 
God does speak to us in and through his inspired word. The spirit of God illuminates the truth and shows us the meaning of that scripture, but not just the meaning, gives us a desire to obey and to follow what we read. Second Peter 1.3 says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. What that means is that for every decision you need to make in life, every decision, there is either a direct command of scripture that gives you wisdom or there are principles in scripture that give you wisdom to make a wise decision. But the scriptures are absolutely sufficient for us. David knew that God's word would guide him. The psalmist tell us this all over the place. Your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you in Psalm 119. This is all over the, the Bible that God speaks to us through the word. In the, the great high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17, God sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Even when we talk about seeking wise counsel, what does it mean to seek wise counsel? It means that you have a decision you have to make and you either don't know what the word says or you want to check yourself to make sure you know accurately what the word says. So you go to someone you believe has as much or more wisdom than you do in the scriptures and says, help me understand what the scriptures say I should do. That's seeking wise counsel. Help me apply what the Bible says to my situation. And so hide the word in your heart, Christian. God will lead you through his word. Secondly, God leads us through his divine providence, through his divine providence. We're gonna see this next week, but the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign over all things and not one moment of our lives fall out of step with God's ultimate plans. The primary way that God carries out his sovereign will throughout history, although there have been moments of miraculous interactions, far and away, the most common way that God has directed all things to accomplish his purposes is through providence. What is providence? This is my own definition, but providence is God working out his sovereign plan through the use of normal means. What I mean is, a miracle is when God interrupts the flow of, of the natural design. So a river is stopped, it splits. Um, manna falls from heaven. Those are not things, people rise from the dead, okay? Those are things that are outside the normal flow that God has created. That's a miracle. Providence is working in and through the normal means of life without interrupting the flow of life. So working in and through real decisions that human beings make, real things that happen on, in our planet and causing all of that to be woven together in such a way that God uh, superintends the end to accomplish his ends. That's providence. But here's the difficult thing. God never invites us to be a part of providence. He doesn't promise to tell you what he's doing, why he's doing it. In fact, we see God's providence most clearly in the rearview mirror. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm, I'm positive that I could have you come up here and recount how you've seen in the past God work in ways in your life that you didn't know at the time what he was doing, but now you look back and you're like, wow, that's amazing. That's how we see providence. So when we look back on our lives, we can see God's working like a tapestry. It's just a beautiful tapestry. But when we look forward, it looks like a rat's nest of yarn. 
And it's like, how, how's that gonna end up like that? Providence. Trusting in God's providence works like this. You open the word of God and you do what it says. Trusting that God is sovereignly at work in your circumstances and that one day you will look back on this circumstance and see a tapestry instead of a knot of yarn. That's how we trust God's providence. We put one foot in front of the other. So when you look on the horizon and your heart begins to shake because really dark circumstances are headed your way, what do you do? How do you trust that God will lead you? You read the word and obey it and you trust that God is still providentially working and that one day you'll understand at least in part what he's done and why he's done it. But you know our temptation is to try to get involved in providence, to try to manipulate our circumstances. You know, if I just do this, then cause and effect, it'll have this effect. We can do that with our kids, we can do that in marriage, we can do that in our job. God says, leave the providence to me. You just read the word, do what I say, and trust me. And I will be the sovereign God who weaves it all together into a tapestry for my glory. So we fight off worry and despair in both real and potential difficulties by recalling to mind God leads us, he leads us. But there's a second form of help that's mentioned here. Help number two, he preserves us. He preserves us, verse 10, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. The hand of power, the hand of blessing will reach out and lay a hold of me. David trusts that God will not only lead him through his circumstance, but his all-powerful hand will hold him so that he will not be ultimately lost. Now understand, that does not mean, this is not a promise that God will never allow physical or emotional harm to come to his people. Many times he calls us to walk through difficult circumstances that are truly painful. But what it means is that God will hold you fast in and through that difficulty and will not let you go. He will be there to provide spiritual strength and he will be there to ensure that your soul will never be lost. And he will walk with you and preserve you through that difficult time. As we're reminded in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Christian, don't miss how encouraging this is. Even if you find yourself in the worst situation that you can imagine, even if you find yourself living the nightmare you always feared might happen to you, even there, God will not only be with you face to face, nose to nose, but he will lead you through that circumstance and he will hold you fast with his right hand so that you will not be crushed and lost in the midst of it. This is our God. 
And David's so convinced of it now that he finishes this section with a third example that's sort of a climactic example of the worst of the worst. He's gonna compare brightest light and deepest darkness. Brightest light and deepest darkness. He says in verse 12, verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Again, this statement is true in both the literal sense and in the symbolic sense. If you are physically surrounded by darkness or your circumstances feel like you are walking in darkness, this is true. David pictures a scenario in which he's looking ahead and on the horizon is coming at him this deep foreboding darkness. This is not an example of David sinfully running away into darkness. This is David seeking to follow the Lord. He's living in the light, but darkness is coming for him. Difficult circumstances are on the horizon and David says, that's going to engulf me. That's gonna surround me. Now, I know many of you are new to Texas, and if you are, we say welcome to you and howdy. <laughs> but if you're new here, you may not yet understand that we have something here called thunderstorms. And they're big, some of them. Sometimes these thunderstorms at their worst are truly scary and terrifying experiences. And when you see a, a real Texas thunderstorm coming on the horizon, it could be midday, and yet there is a darkness coming for you that you know is gonna be difficult, truly surrounding an immense deep darkness, a boiling darkness on the horizon, a darkness so heavy that you can feel it physically as the temperature begins to drop and it begins to approach. And at some point it becomes clear as that dark cloud comes towards you that you might be able to go inside and take cover but you're going to have to go through that storm. There's just no way to get around it. You're going to have to let the storm pass by. And it's not just that clouds are dark, it's that they're scary. They produce within us the fear that something in that cloud is going to do physical harm to me. And that's what David's experiencing and describing here. He looks not only at the circumstance and says it's dark, but there's something in that darkness that's gonna hurt me. It's, in fact, the, the Hebrew word here for, that's often translated as overwhelm literally is the word bruise. It's gonna bruise me, it's gonna, it's gonna hurt. You know, in our humanness, we're so limited and darkness, therefore, is truly terrifying. It's terrifying because we can't see where we're going in the dark, and it's terrifying because we can't see what's coming at us in the dark. So how does God's omnipresence help us in that situation? Well, David goes on to describe in verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. I love that word picture. Here we have the omnipresence of God, even the omniscience of God combining together in one encouraging truth. God does not share our limitations. God's vision is not dependent on light or anything else. For us, darkness changes everything about our ability to see. But for God, darkness changes nothing about his vision. 
either literal darkness is true, but even emotional difficulty and that kind of darkness, God sees just as clearly in the dark as he does in noon when the sun is at its highest point. Darkness and light are alike to God here. Here we're not talking about darkness and light in a moral sense. We're talking about literal darkness and literal light. His vision sees just as clearly in both circumstances. So notice how David's shepherding his mind here as he thinks on God's character. Notice he does not say, this is important. He does not say that it appears that darkness will overtake me, but because I know you're with me, I believe it won't. Doesn't say that. That's actually the prosperity gospel message that's so common today. The prosperity gospel tells us if you find yourself in dark, difficult circumstances, it's because you've been faithless and you're in sin in some way. And until you repent, the darkness won't go away. But the true gospel tells us that God will not spare us from suffering in this temporal life. We don't have time to go there this morning, but write down Acts chapter nine, verses 10 to 16. I want you to go and see when Paul is ultimately saved and called to ministry, God sends a man, Ananias, to go to him and to pray over him. Ananias doesn't wanna go, but God tells him, you need to go because I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. We don't have a theology of suffering as Christians, but the Bible does. God doesn't promise to spare us from the suffering that comes in this temporal fallen world, but he does promise us that we do not have to lose heart as believers. And we don't lose heart because we have full confidence that while our ability to see is completely snuffed out by darkness, our God can see just as clearly as the day. Even more than that is as redeemed Christians, redeemed by the blood of Christ, adopted by God the Father, when you look at that dark cloud on the horizon that's coming to engulf you, you have the full confidence to say that God is with you where you stand and he's even in the darkness as it approaches because he's everywhere all the time at the same time. So that we can literally say, I don't know what's in that cloud, but I know who is in it and he will lead me and he will hold me. There are many who profess to believe that God is sovereign, that he's omniscient, that he's omnipresent, but there's a difference in believing that God is this way and trusting him to be this way. For many, when dark clouds of trial and temptation come knocking on the door, even though they ardently believe cognitively that God is sovereign, they still find themselves overcome with anger or anxiety or fear. And so that means something's missing. Something's missing between our theology and our practice. The difference between simply believing that these things are true of God cognitively and trusting him to be these things really comes down to obedience. Will you continue to obey the things he's commanded you while you're in the dark? Will you keep putting one foot in front of the other? Not because you can see where you're going, but because you trust the God who's leading you and holding you. And so even in the dark, you just keep serving. You just keep obeying. You just keep trusting that he will be who he says he will be. 
Some of you may know that I love horses and I love horseback riding. It's actually one of my favorite things to do, especially when I was in college. I did a lot of that. I had a lot more time on my hands to do that. But I worked for a man named Ron who owned a, a, a horse-drawn carriage business and also a trail riding business. And one day Ron invited me to go with him on a trail ride to help break in a horse that was pretty green and wasn't safe for paying customers. So I got to ride that horse. But <laughs> We're riding through the woods together and I'm on this green horse and he's on a horse named Dakota, an older horse that he'd had for a number of years, probably somewhere around 25 years old. And the amazing thing about this horse is he was completely blind. And we're riding through these trails in the midst of East Texas, big trees up and down hills, crossing through creeks. And yet Dakota is going with us stride for stride, completely blind. You know, there'd be times when Dakota would stop and paw the ground because of an elevation change, trying to feel how far the drop would be. And he and Ron had built up a special relationship over decades and he was, Ron was the only one who would ride Dakota and Dakota trusted him and Ron wouldn't get impatient with him. He would just speak to him and encourage him to take another step and Dakota would go completely blind. Listen, Christian, the Lord is fully acquainted with all your limitations. He knows you can't see your hand in front of your face. He knows he's often asking you to walk through difficult and dark circumstances and he's asking you to obey when your heart is breaking. And he doesn't grow impatient with you. He doesn't chastise you for your weaknesses. Instead, he encourage you, encourages you through his word, keep trusting, keep obeying. Just put one foot in front of the other. I won't lead you astray. So that we can rejoice with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when Paul recounts and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And so when God brings that foreboding cloud of darkness into your life, trust him, meditate on his word, and just do the next thing, one foot in front of the other and let God deal with how he providentially works all of that for his purposes and for your good. And so as we draw this to a close, really it brings us to three points of application. Number one, I wanna call us all to meditate on the omnipresence of God. Spend some time grappling with this idea in your mind as David has done. Take some time today and this week to truly meditate on the fact that God is omnipresent. He sees you face to face all the time. And I want you to ask yourself some pointed questions. Ask yourself, when are you most tempted to live as if God is not omnipresent? When are you tempted to forget that God is with you? And when are you most tempted to pursue sin or worry because you're not remembering that God is with you face to face? Think on those things. 
As I've said, David's writing to believers here. He means for this to be an encouragement for those of us in Christ and how to walk through the difficulties. But at the same time, it's not lost on me or on David that some of you here likely have areas of your life that you think are secretly tucked away from God's view. And David has reminded us here that that is the height of foolishness. Just as with God's omniscience, God's omnipresence holds us to account to understand that we have no secrets from God. Actually, the idea of secrecy is an illusion when we think of right theology. And so if you're here this morning and, and your life really consists of a hidden pattern of sin, then I would call you to test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Understand that all of us are sinners and that in our sin, we deserve the wrath of God and our sin separates us from a holy God. The only answer to our sin is the person of Jesus Christ, that God has given his perfect son to live the perfect life and to offer that life on the cross as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins and then to rise again from the grave on the third day. The Bible says if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, turning and exposing those deeds of darkness to the Lord that he already knows are there, confessing yourself to be a sinner and your need for what Christ has done to pay for your sins, the Bible says you'll be forgiven of your sins, paid in full, and be able to walk in the newness of life that Christ provides. This is the only logical conclusion of the omnipresence of God, to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ. But back to those of us who are in Christ, secondly, I wanna call us to trust in the omnipresence of God. Trust it, don't just believe it, trust it. Trust that God truly is with you at all times. Trust that God is leading you at all times and working your circumstances together to accomplish his purposes. Fill your mind with his word so that you're able to shepherd your heart with truth so that you know how to put one foot in front of the other. And fill your mind with specific examples of how God has worked throughout history and even in your own life. Remind yourself when, when God's people have walked through dark times, how God wove all that together into this tapestry of his glory and his goodness. And realize that God is still weaving in your circumstance, even though it doesn't feel that way. And finally, that trust should lead to the third application, obey in light of the omnipresence of God. Obey, don't allow your trials and your difficulties or your joys and your successes to be a justification for sin. Do the hard work of pursuing obedience. Forgive, trust, pursue purity, put on humility, believe the best, put on self-control, prefer others over yourself. In the midst of a trial, it's so easy to be so inwardly focused and to justify the sins that normally we would be putting off. Keep producing by God's grace, pursuing the, the fruit of the spirit. As you pursue that, God will produce that in you by his spirit. Pursue obedience on the brightest of days and on the darkest of days. And the all-present, all-knowing God will strengthen you for the task and he will preserve you through the storm. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is such a, a good reminder, such a comfort for our hearts and our souls. It's so easy for us in the dark times and it's easy for us even in the brightest of times to forget 
that you are there with us face to face. God, help us to find strength and encouragement in the fact that you are the omnipresent God. And you're not just with us, but you're there for our good to help us by your word and by your preserving hand. God, we pray that you would use these truths in us, continue to grow us in these things and forgive us where we fail. By no means do we trust you perfectly, but help us today to trust you more and help us to be faithful in these things and may you be glorified through it. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.